We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. How do you know that enough is enough? It's one of the questions that couples approaching me for marital therapy often ask. And it's a great question. When do you grit your teeth and try harder? When is it time to pause and try to find another way forward? When is it better to call it quits? It's not just in relationships, but jobs, careers, friendships. In every field of life, there's a lot of pressure to keep on keeping on. Quitting is for losers. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And one from my mother, if at first you don't succeed, then try, try and try again. However, my witness today thinks quitting is an underrated skill. Julia Keller is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author of a new book called Quitting, A Life Strategy the myth of perseverance, and how the science of giving up can set you free. Welcome, Julia. Your book starts with a startling sentence. Quitting is an act of love. What do you mean by that? You know, that sentence just sort of occurred to me after long reflection and even longer period when I interviewed many, many people about the turning points in their lives. And very often, these turning points were predicated on this notion of quitting and how much we have to do to get to that point, how many old ideas and, and ideas that are kind of worn out and not working for us anymore, how many of those we had to jettison in order to get to the point when we can say, as you put it, enough is enough, and this is my enough, this point. It's an act of love because it seemed to me, as I said, when I really, really thought about it, it is probably the deepest turning point in all of our lives, that quitting really encompasses what it means to be human. I use the phrase as well, pause and a pivot. And when we're able to do that, when we're able to follow our own lights, follow our own heart, and I even think it's a spiritual issue, a deeply spiritual issue, that's when we know we are we are being fully human and we are being who we were born to be and using our gifts and talents in ways we're supposed to do. But of course, opposed to that, as you pointing out, is not only all the slogans and all the aphorisms we have about perseverance, but this very, very tough, entrenched, stubborn idea that there is something wrong with quitting, that it implies weakness instead of strength, that instead of an act of love, it's actually a, a, an act of self-sabotage. And my book, of course, is, is very, very squarely opposed to that. And you have form when it comes to quitting. The book starts with you at grad school at West Virginia University, sobbing on a grimy <laughs> linoleum floor. You can't really get much lower than that, can you? That's about as low as it gets. And, you know, I've often reflected since I talk about that incident in the book, going back to that moment, because we all have those those moments in our in our lives when we are at the end of our emotional tethers. And I think going back, if I could have said to that person that you're going to be at one point, you're going to be talking to someone like you, wise, inspirational, learned, and you're going to be talking about that experience. I would not have believed it. That's just how low and low I had sunk. So talk me through it. You know, what were you doing at this university? Introduce us to this much younger version of Julia. 
well, not that much younger. I had graduated from college early, which seemed like a fine idea at the time. Well, I'll save money. It's all that. I wasn't particularly brilliant. I wasn't some prodigy. I was just able to cobble together courses and, and such. So I was 19 years old, which is younger, of course, than a typical college graduate in the United States. I went off to graduate school in English literature, thinking I was going to be a great Virginia Woolf scholar and, and end up influencing subsequent generations of uh, students and scholars. However, I was emotionally vastly unprepared to live alone. I'd always lived at home going to college. And so I just found myself in this place. It was very desolate, very despondent. I really had no business to be undertaking a serious course of graduate study at that point. 19 years old, but emotional age, maybe 12 or 13, I think, even to be charitable. Everybody has those moments. That's what I discovered in researching my book. Everybody has that moment when they get to, it might be in a relationship, as you alluded to, might be a marriage, might be a friendship, might be a job. Those are the ones that are kind of obvious, but there are less obvious ones too. A belief system. Sometimes we have to let go of an old belief system. We have to let go of an idea of life that we had when our life doesn't work out that way. People who go through traumatic events, perhaps physical injuries, where they realize that their life henceforth is going to be different, not lesser, but different. And those are the kind of events that I highlight when I talk to people. I never came across a single person. I did probably 150, 200 interviews. A person who said, quitting, hmm, momentous event. No, I can't really think of anything. Everybody has them. And that was kind of a revelation to me. I sort of assumed that everybody would have them, but come to find out they really did. And then in further research, I discovered that that's also a new threshold of neuroscience research is looking at what happens inside the brain when we quit. It isn't just an emotional decision to think, I've, I've had it here, you know, throwing down the towel and storming out of the restaurant where maybe you're a, a waiter. It's more than that. It is an actual neurological phenomena that occur inside the brain, and it's a new focus of research in dealing with issues like addiction, dealing with issues such as emotional and, and psychiatric disabilities and behavioral disabilities that we're born with. So it took on a much richer contour the, the, the more I delved into it, which is not to say that leaving relationships and marriages is not important. It's just that that's not all that there is when we talk about quitting and our very misguided reverence for perseverance. When you actually said that you'd interviewed all your friends and asked them to come up with a, a quitting story, I had to say, I think that I might be that person who hasn't got a quitting story. Oh, I can't well, believe that. Really? Well, it's only when you change the language and mm. you say leaving rather than quitting, then, yes. you know, I've left the UK and now live in Germany. But did I quit the UK? I think I yeah. moved to Germany. No, that's funny you say that because the language, you know, on the interviews I've done in the wake of the book, there are many people, and for some reason, I, I have no idea why I haven't explored this. It's mainly men that really hate that idea of quitting. I was being interviewed by one gentleman and he just was physically bristling at the idea. And he said, I've never quit anything in my life. And I said, now come now, surely. He said, well, I have left jobs and I've changed my ideas about things and I'm on my second marriage, but I didn't quit. And I said to him, why do you think that word, why is that word the one that, that, that that's what you stumble over? That's the impediment, the word. And indeed, I think the word itself is freighted with such negative baggage. And why is that? As you know, in my book, I explore the whole history behind that. Why we have this idea that to quit, to stop, to pause, to think again, and to go in another direction, that's all we're really talking about, whether we call it quitting, leaving, whatever euphemism you choose, all we're talking about is choosing another path, stopping one path, maybe pausing for a moment and then choosing another. But why, why do we have such a 
even emotional, uh, somewhat volcanic reaction at times to it. But I would, I would say that, yes, you did indeed quit the UK. And obviously, it's been a good thing. But that word, as you say, that's the hang up. And I think that actually some people are so against the idea of, uh, we'll call it quitting, that they sort of get somebody else to do the quitting, if you know what I mean. You know, sort of, you, you sort of make things so unpleasant. For, for example, I'm, I'm going to be keeping going back to relationships. I'm sorry. Uh, you make things so unpleasant for your partner that they do the leaving. I mean, that I often get people saying, you know, you're wanting me to make the decision. Uh, and that way, you don't have to take responsibility for it. You didn't quit. You were there to the very end. It's just you were encouraging your partner unconsciously or maybe even consciously to do the quitting for you. You know, that is an excellent point. And I I really don't reflect enough upon that in my book. And I, I wish we had talked, you know, as I was writing, because I think you were quite right, because we do have this terrible sort of predilection against quitting, I think often we do that in jobs as well. I had a friend who was miserable at her job. She was a colleague of mine, but she really didn't have, and I'm going to be a little judgmental, really didn't have the guts, didn't really have the fortitude to quit on her own because that's such a momentous thing. So she just absolutely, you know, challenged our boss again and again. She was, I think, downright disrespectful and rude. She did everything she could do, hoping she would get fired. And then it was somebody else's fault. And then she could go around complaining about the fact that she had been fired by these terrible bastards. When the reality was, and I I love your point, I think it's true in relationships, jobs, we really do that. From a behavioral standpoint, you're quite right. We get someone else to be our quitting proxy. (laughs) I love the term quitting proxy. I was going to say a sneaky quitter. Ah, Indeed. But again, that just goes back to our original point. I think that's just more evidence of what we were saying originally, which is we are so opposed to the idea of quitting that we can't even often even bear to do it. We know we need to do it. I always maintain that that deep within ourselves, we know when it's time to go. We have that sometimes. So there's a lot between us and the act. Here's the impulse and here's the act. And what is between us is all this cultural baggage and all this historical baggage. So what we do is or we find various ways around it because we know we know when it's time. So where do you think the idea that grit is virtuous and quitting is sinful come from? You know, a lot of people immediately say to me, oh, it's the Protestant work ethic. Sort of is, but I think it kind of a better place to go to from a cultural standpoint, it may indeed be our religious ideas about, you know, nose to the grindstone, is the middle of 19th century, and actually in London, when a man named Samuel Smiles wrote a book called Self-Help with Illustrations of Character and Conduct, coined this phrase, self-help. And his book was a series of vignettes, very cleverly done, about people who had achieved things against the odds. It was, uh, you know, industrialists and inventors and great men, all men at the time, of course, even some poets and potters. How had they done it? They had stayed the course. They had stuck with it. And the idea began to emerge, and people liked this idea, that the way you can succeed in life is to work hard and not quit. The way to lose in life is to quit because it was a very simple black and white way of viewing the world. And the world at that time, of course, was becoming more and more demarcated by income inequality. The industrial revolution meant that a few people at the top were amassing these great fortunes, titanic fortunes, gold carriages, and people at the very bottom, vast majority of people were dying in gutters. You had mothers with tiny babies who were starving to death, living in rags in terrible parts of London, just unspeakable misery and poverty. How do you justify that? If you're kind of a decent person, you look at that and you think, how do I make sense of this? One way to make sense of it is to tell ourselves and to begin to believe 
that the thing that means you're going to succeed is working hard. And it's an easy, quick way. If you see somebody who hasn't succeeded and we do it today, we say, well, just didn't work enough, quit too often, slept too late, didn't work hard enough, and you quit. And that's why you're a loser. I mean, you know, look at all the profiles we write, these fawning profiles of people with great wealth. I mean, the, the Jeff Bezoses and the Elon Musks and I mean, the new Elon Musk biography. He worked hard. He worked hard, by golly. He never let setbacks keep him down for long. It's a real easy way to look at the world and divide it into two camps. And I would maintain, we know deep in our hearts that that isn't so. We know that we are born with different abilities. We're born you know, in many parts of the world, if you are born black or brown or any skin color other than white, you are in for a very difficult time. We know that systemic racism exists. We know that people are born with physical and emotional and all kinds of disabilities, intellectual disabilities. We know that to be true. But somehow when we look at those things, it's somehow special pleading or it's making excuses when we look at those things. And yet we know that they're true. So what you say is that we all have white flag moments. So tell me what a white flag moment is and give me some examples. You know, that was one of the things about the book that I really wanted to include in there, which is people's experiences when they got to that point. Some of them are historical. I mean, I have a long distance swimmer that I quote in there where she was, she knew she was dying if she kept going, but she wasn't going to quit until someone had to say to her, this is it. Your life hangs in the balance. Now, for most of it, it isn't that dramatic. Most it's among the people I interviewed were, I did start out with friends, as you mentioned, but then it went on to friends of friends. And I sort of was this outward going spiral of people that I spoke with. And one woman, it was, uh, she was sitting in her boss's office. She hated her job, but she could never bring herself to quit. This had gone on for years. And she just has this moment of looking out the window and seeing a big pile of dirty snow in the city of Chicago. You know, the snow gets really dirty toward the end of the season. There's nothing beautiful or pristine about it anymore. She sees this big pile of snow and she remembers thinking, I wish that were a giant monster and it was going to come into this room here and just like eat this woman up and just she'd be. And then she thought, whoa, whoa. It it was kind of this moment when she realized that am I wishing this person did not exist anymore, that maybe it's time for me to go. That's not me. That's not who I want to be. So that was her white flag moment when she said, I just can't do this anymore. And then other people, as you mentioned, were telling me stories about when they got to that point. And it's individual for everybody. That's why sometimes I'll be asked, like, should I leave this? Should I do this? Should I go another way? And my reply is always, you have to decide. Those white flag moments are highly individual. I would maintain one of the most personal and individual things we ever do is to decide when to go, when the time is right to make this change from a job, relationship, but also maybe your religion, maybe your political affiliation. But often, actually, it's our body that makes the choice for us. The body stops cooperating with the brain, so to speak. What a great point. Yes, indeed. With human beings, it is quite true. We're given other signals. We start getting ulcers. We realize we're having physical symptoms. And then, of course, the analogy I make in the book is to the animal world, When and we are animals too, of course, but other than humans, non-human animals, who don't have the luxury of making decisions about these things. For them, it's a matter of life and death. It's survival. So I use the example of the finches on Galapagos Island, who their sustenance is a seed inside a very thick-hided plant called a caltrop. If that bird spends too long getting that seed out of there, it will perish because animals live on a much thinner margin of existence than we do. So it's not a matter of thinking, boy, am I going to look weak if I give up or sniveling if I give up on this particular plant? They must go on or they will die. 
as human beings, we've evolved past that kind of necessity of just day-to-day survival. But in some ways, it works against us because we do put up with things for a very long period of time when perhaps we might be better if we channeled our inner finch and realized that it really is a matter of survival, if not physical survival, then emotional and spiritual survival. Well, I have to tell you, I still feel a little queasy about the idea of quitting. But what actually helps me, and I think that you put it really well, is that quitting is a dial, not a switch. And I think that is the very heart of the wisdom on this subject. So tell me about that. You know, when I've talked about this, I talk about a rheostat dial, and I assumed everybody knew what that was, maybe just coming from where I come from in the world. Apparently, some people call it a dimmer switch as well, but people have it often on a light switch. A rheostat dial, where you dial it up or down, say if you're in a dining room and you want the lights to be down, just a fraction. We see quitting often as a toggle switch, on or off. And I maintain that we should see it more as that rheostat dial. There are times when we pause and we pivot. You don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater, as it were. You don't have to throw out everything. You can change your situation just a hair, just a little bit, or maybe a few degrees more, a few degrees in one direction or another. That if you don't see quitting as an all or nothing enterprise, you can see it more as a strategy, as a tactic, as I've mentioned. It doesn't look like a, that's it, I'm here or I'm gone. Maybe just change a situation. A job or relationship is a perfect example to make it more in keeping with your own vision of what you want. You don't have to leave. You don't have to quit the job or leave the relationship. Sometimes it's a matter of just a slight alteration, a slight adjustment to make it more to your liking. Because what I would say from the bottom of my heart when it comes to relationships, it's really important to speak up sooner because we have this, you know, keep on keeping on kind of attitude we sort of don't say anything and it builds and it builds and it then becomes a sort of a crisis. And the point that you speak to your partner, my most famous book is called, I love you, but I'm not in love with you, which is a way of saying, you know, our relationship has really reached a crisis point. If we can't solve this, then that's the end of the relationship. Now, for lots of people, that's heard as I'm leaving, I want a divorce. But actually, If you could speak up a bit sooner and say, I'm really struggling in this relationship, we need to make some changes, this isn't working for me and that isn't working for me. So you're quitting the individual things that aren't working, which I think is lowering down your dial, your rheostat, rather than the on-off sort of kind of thing, which often, by the time somebody reaches me, the question is, one person wants to switch it off and the other one wants to say, why do you want to switch the light off? The relationship is so good. Yes. And there are things salvageable within it. Yes. Yes. Instead of this all or nothing. I have to say, I don't know about you, but I know when I was a kid, I was very invested in that all or nothing thinking. I was either going to be the greatest writer in the history of the world, or I was going to be a total failure and flop. And life takes place in the middle and the same with relationships. I mean, they're not always going to be this high peak There's going to be just that middle day-to-day existence. And that's looked down upon, which I don't know. I mean, the famous T.S. Eliot lines always used about measuring out your life in coffee spoons. And I remember when I first read that, I thought, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, measuring out your life, that's what life is. Life is not the big high operatic moments very often. I mean, in terms of relationships, it is the coffee spoons. And when you can take the deep satisfaction in that with someone you know well enough to where it's the coffee spoon side of life is what you relish. I think you're a lot better off. And it is, as you say, don't let it build up, but quit the small things or just, you know, talk with the other person to quit the small things in time. So it doesn't get to be the on off switch. 
to show you what a terrible quitter I am, I think the first book that I ever gave myself the permission not to finish is, I'm not certain if I'm going to get the title right, you'll be able to help me with this. It won the Nobel Prize for, and it was an Indian author, and it was called something like The God of Small Things. Oh, right. Yeah. And I found that I just did not like that book. And I suddenly realized, if I don't like a book, I don't have to go to the end of it. And you, would be- you know, it took me probably 40 years to reach that point. You know, you'd be surprised how many people, I wrote a column once, it was a literary columnist at the Chicago Tribune, how many people are really beset by this real negative idea of quitting a book, the way it gets at them like very few other things do. I mean, it is almost like, it's like, well, I've already, I think it's a whole sunk cost fallacy. I've already put in this much time. I've already, there are all these things that mitigate against quitting a book. My column was about, no, quit it. Don't do it. And then I was on a radio show thereafter, a public radio with, um, it's a famous person who I shouldn't name because I want to say I think they're a liar. Uh, this person said, well, I wanted to quit War and Peace, but I stuck with it. And I swear, I just wanted to call this man out and say, really? I don't believe you. I don't think you stayed with War and Peace. Quitting a book, though, I mean, it's very interesting to me. I don't know what it is that we see it as maybe a lack of, not only a lack of drive, but also maybe a lack of intellectual acumen, maybe because a book takes on all kinds of elements, not just as a pastime, but that it takes on this idea, too, that we weren't smart enough, we weren't not only not diligent enough, but we just weren't brilliant enough to finish it. But it really, really bugs a lot of people to not finish a book that they have started. And there's a formula. Nancy Pearl, who's the wonderful book critic and librarian here in the United States, she has a formula that something like um, you're able to quit a book after like 14.2 pages or something like that. I mean, she's got an actual formula. I think it's it's a bit in fun, but it makes the point that we feel very guilty about quitting a book that we have once begun. So I have to admit that I skipped big chunks of Anna Karenina when he sort of goes off into a discussion about the state of peasants for 15 pages. Skip right. those, get back to the relationship between Anna Karenina and I've forgotten the name of the guy. Count Vronsky, Count Vronsky. You know, so the book yeah. sings yeah. and then there's a whole coda that I don't want to read. I, I think that part of that too is like if we the history, we know that books in the 19th century, a lot of them were serialized. For instance, a lot of the big, thick doorstop novels in the British canon were long for a reason. They were serialized. People were paid by the word. And so Charles Dickens's books can be a little longer than they need be. And Elizabeth Gaskell, I'm reading Wives and Daughters right now, her very, very, very thick book. A lot of that is because they had the elbow room. They didn't have an idea of somebody going out and buying this individual book. That's how they ended up. But at the beginning, they were serialized. In fact, Charles Dickens's magazine serialized Elizabeth Gaskell's work. So there was an incentive to make them long and to put in a lot of stuff that they just assumed you were going to skip. So I think that one of the problems with quitting is that it's really frightening. We don't know what's going to happen next. You didn't know when you left your college what you were going to do with the rest of your life. I mean, phoning up your father and saying, come and get me is really difficult because you didn't know, one, how he would react, or number two, what came next. Absolutely right. I think the fear factor is one that I try to get at in my book, which is it is always hard. And it doesn't get any easier. We get old, hopefully get wise, but it's still the hardest thing in the world we do is to quit something, particularly something that we've been at for a while in which we had invested high hopes. So yes, back when I was 19 years old, I had no idea. I was truly terrified. 
doing nothing was no longer an option. So when I, at that point, I knew I had to get out of there. But I having no idea, you're just in free fall. It's a really terrifying prospect to quit anything, even the smallest thing, because there's always that fear of regret. And so one strategy I would try to use was what I would call pre-regret. In other words, just acknowledging, just as you did, I'm scared. You know, just saying, like, I don't know what's going to happen after this. You know, quitting a job, relationship, a spiritual belief is just to acknowledge to yourself and perhaps to a trusted friend in whom you confide, I don't know what's next for me. And I'm really frightened about this. And I may end up regretting this for the rest of forever. And yet I still know it's the right thing to do. Somehow by speaking the words and by acknowledging the regret, that's my sort of pre-regret idea is to say, all right, I know I'm going to look back on this and regret it. And yeah, it's not so bad, maybe. I mean, certainly things that I have quit that I've looked back upon now, I kind of wish I'd stayed with that a little bit. And that's not a bad thing. So give me an example of something you quit that you wish you hadn't. Well, you know, I was at the Tribune. I mentioned the Chicago Tribune for many years, and then I decided I wanted to write books. Now, that was fine. I had a book contract. The books have done very well. I've been able to support myself, and all that's great. But I wish I had stayed a little longer in daily journalism because I found myself missing there's a kind of a rush and a clatter and a feeling like you're, you're, you're a part of events. Whenever there's a news event now, I mean, one of my jobs was to call a lot of opinions from knowledgeable people and to write cultural essays about things. And I loved that. I loved when there was a big event feeling like I was not involved in the event, but involved in the interpretation of that event and maybe giving people a way to think about something that was off the beaten path, that was out of the mainstream. And then I wasn't able to do that anymore. When you're writing novels, you know, you're writing for a year or two down the road. And so I missed that. One of my big regrets was, why didn't I stay a little longer? Or, you know, the newspaper very kindly said, well, would you want to continue to write a column? And I thought, no, 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 no. I need a, I need a clean break here. Let's just do this. And I wish I had stayed with it a bit longer. So that was a that was a regret I had just kind of in the immediate, just like, boy, I really missed that. But again, one of the ways I tried to deal with that was just by admitting it and saying, boy, I, and the reality was I could call my editors and they were happy to take an essay that I felt moved to write, but it wasn't the same as them calling me and saying, all right, this thing happened. So, you know, you're really in the midst of it. And my first thought was always, who's going to know about this? Who has the most knowledge about this? Where will I find that expertise? And I used to really love that and to try to put together something that was going to, to enlighten people beyond just the parade of facts. I think we should really have a go at Frank Sinatra myself, because, yes. you know, when he says regrets, I've had a few, yes. but too few to mention, we sort of won't admit to our regrets. And now you've admitted to your regrets. I'm sort of saying, well, they're not actually that big once we've actually got them out on the table and we've examined them. But this idea that we're not allowed to have regrets... It's sort of human, isn't it? I think it's a great, great point. That re- Yes, it does. It's one of those things, like quitting, regret is the same thing. It's one of the things that makes us human. And it, in so many ways, we are, as you say, sort of afraid to acknowledge that as if somehow it makes us seem lesser or weak or, you know, part of this, uh, and I assume it's true elsewhere. I can only speak for sort of the American ethos, which is you're striding forth and you know what you're doing and you you have it all together and then off you go. And that's what we celebrate, the kind of conviction that never allows for second thoughts, never allows for reflection or even kind of a melancholy, perhaps I should have done that a little bit different. I should have been a little kinder. And that's ultimately where I hope to get to in the book is this notion of being a little kinder to each other. You know, when people do quit things to not be so, I mean, we are, we are so swift to just bring that sword right down and to say, ah, but see there, you brought it on yourself. That's one of the worst feelings is to feel judged by others. 
and maybe just be a little kinder. And I, I have certainly been guilty of being a judge of people being far too judgmental of people in my life when they have made other decisions that I don't agree with is to instantly say, ha, what you see there? When really what we ought to be saying is we're human, we have regrets, we leave things behind. We shouldn't, we don't always work as hard as we should. Sometimes we work too hard, but we're human ultimately. And for that to be something positive instead of a, a negative, this notion of being only human. So inertia is also a big problem for people. And I think that it's very possible that somebody listening to this as sort of inertia is keeping them there. How do they decide if now is time to take one of your permission slips? And if it is, how do they quit? You know, I think this really harkens back to what you were talking about a little bit earlier, which is if you allow the fact that regret exists and you might indeed regret it, that then does kind of get you off the dime, as it were, because I think what's often holding us back isn't laziness. It's often classed as laziness and classified that way when it really isn't at all. It's the fear, that fear of so many things. It might not work out and that you always look back and think, oh, I had it all and I let it go. You know, the bird in the hand rather than the two in the bush. That notion keeps us so stuck and then we can't move forward. And it might be better, oh, but it might be worse. You know, I come from sort of a negative family. I was, we were always like, you know, if, if there's a chance if it's going to be better or worse, it's going to be worse, you know, make no mistake. And it's a kind of a dark way to live. It's a kind of a often, I think, suffocatingly dark way to live, which is to always think the worst case scenario is always kind of brooding over my shoulder. I, and I'm constantly having to push back against what was really instilled in me from the time I was young, that things are not going to work out, probably. So give me some examples of permission slips. I think some of the ones I used in there were to look at your own attitudes toward quitting and to interrogate them and say, why do I feel that way? You know, I have a chapter on the, our cultural ideas of quitting. The ones I mentioned, like an office space, which is sort of a famous comedy where Jennifer Aniston has this scene when she quits her boss. She's a waitress and her boss pushes her a little too hard and he's kind of ridiculous. And so she pulls off her apron and flings it down. It's this great moment. We have a great quitting scene in Jerry Maguire, the film when Tom Cruise quits his job. The point I make with that is the permission slip there is, all right, think about those films and why do you get that real kind of fun? There's a kind of a, of a fizzy fun that comes from looking at people quitting jobs. Why? Then you sort of understand better your own relationship to quitting. And why does that feel good to me? Why, why would that feel liberating? And then sort of circle back to your own life. So part of the permission slip idea, as you know, at the end of each chapter is kind of saying to sort of rethink each of these things that we think we know everything about. You would think, oh, I've got that down. Of course. I mean, who doesn't want these things as if we're all the same? And we are all such individuals. So if you just rethink your own relationship to quitting, and where do I get that idea? I mean, early on when you were saying, you know, you wouldn't say that you quit the UK, it was that word, leave, yes, quit, no. Well, why? I mean, look at the words and why does that word have that meaning to me? And often you might find something, you know, in your own past that is kind of shadowing your idea of quitting. It's like, okay, I see. That's why, because this happened, you know, maybe I had my aunt Bessie was the one who quit this job and she was never happy again. And that's what I'm carrying with me all this time. And it's a way of setting down your own personal baggage and sort of making your relationships with yourself and with others and with jobs a little more pure and a little less shadowed and burdened by all that's gone before. Because I'm coming up to the age of retirement and I'm determined that I'm not going to retire. Now, I don't know whether that's a good thing or whether it's, you know, this 
Protestant work ethic and I will not quit sort of kind of idea. You know, retirement is a weird thing. It's such a weird word. Maybe it's just me and the circles I run in, but the word almost has no meaning anymore because I don't know. Well, I do know a few people. That isn't true. I know a few people, but only a few people that come to this certain point. You know, in America, the retirement age is supposed to be 65, but I don't know anybody that got to be 65 and then said, okay, that's it. Now I'm out of here. I will never work again. It just doesn't work that way anymore. One thing that happened was, of course, in the wake of the pandemic, when you had people doing a lot of different gig work and people who, who whose career path was going a certain way and the pandemic and lockdowns came along and kind of made a hash of all of that. So we were all forced to rethink working lives and personal lives and the, and the way all of those kind of wove in together or didn't or kind of split apart. So everybody I know is doing, you know, five or six different things doesn't think of a job job. And that would mean that you can't then retire because what, what are you retiring from? It doesn't really, you know, we're living longer than ever before, healthier than ever before. I can never tell anybody's age. Like you tell me you're getting close to retirement age. I mean, that seems impossible to me. I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, good heavens, you know, you're running marathons. I'm 64. I'm not running marathons, I promise well, you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. It would not surprise me to hear that. And you're probably doing a thousand different things in, you know, in the course yeah. of a single week. So it's it's just not a concept anymore. And again, I think that's very much a function of, you know, once we conquered infectious disease in the early 20th century, the projected lifespan doubled. And since then, it hasn't been quite that dramatic. But with each incremental advance in our medicine and in our science. We're living longer and longer and even more to the point, healthier. We're living lives that isn't just sticking around, you know, just being, you know, exhausted and ill. We are living these long, healthy lives now. So we fill it with, I mean, work is who we are. It's what we do. So quitting doesn't mean when I mentioned like, it's not just quitting work. It's quitting one thing that isn't working for another that will work better. And this concept of longer lives makes that even more imperative to do that. It makes it even more important that we live how we want to live and do the things we want to do because we're going to be around a very long time. There's an old saying that be careful of your rut because you're going to be in it a long time. So it's whatever rut you choose, make sure it's one to your liking. Choose wisely. And I think one of the things that might keep us in the rut is we focus on the short-term pain of getting out of the rut and we forget about the long-term pain of actually being in the rut. Boy, that is so true, isn't it? We do. We are such short-term thinkers, which maybe is how we're meant to be. Because again, uh, you know, alluding back to our, our finch on Galapagos Island, he has to think only of that next meal. It can't be, if I wait a little longer, I will come across another weed down the road. I mean, he's hungry now. So short-term thinking is probably hardwired into us, I imagine. But the great glory of being human is that we are able to think past the present moment. I don't know if non-human animals can. I mean, I know a great deal of research being done on, on the brains of animals, but we do know that as human beings, we are equipped with that. We are able to do that. We are able to look beyond the little bit of pain, a little bit of difficulty now and realize it's going to be better later on. That's one of the great glories of being human. So any other quitting tips for us? Well, you know, the main thing is the pause and the pivot and to think of it as a as a rheostat dial is probably the most important, that it doesn't get any easier. That's got to be way up there too in the pantheon of tips, as it were. And to realize that it is going to hurt. It is going to be difficult. You will have regret. And that's the joy of life. Grit your teeth and just keep on at it. <laughs> keep quitting. Keep quitting. Yes. As paradoxical as it seems, I do think that there is something to be said for that. I know it certainly made a difference for me. In a moment, we're going to be looking at a listener's dilemma. 
a meaningful life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So there are many ways you can participate in The Meaningful Life. Maybe you'd like to become a supporter, hear the bonus material and help us produce more editions of this program. Go to www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast. You'll also get a chance to sign up for my newsletter. I write that every two weeks, lots of interesting articles there. And you can also participate in the program by writing in to me as well. You'll find a participate button and you'll be able to send me a letter. And my thanks to the lady who sent me this. I have the kindest, most thoughtful husband. Incredibly good looking, we live a privileged life. We have two children and enjoy substantial security. But I'm bored. We're very rarely intimate and when we are, it's not great and quickly over. I regularly fantasise about being with other people and kink but the consequences of getting caught could be so traumatic, as both my kids have mental health issues. The life we lead is very secure, we'd lose so much and it would hurt the children. I'm just holding on to the fact that we're brilliant friends, but the chemistry has completely gone for me. We tell each other we love each other, and we do. We're just missing the passion. I feel like I'm living a bit of a lie. So, what are your thoughts, Julia? That's such a heartfelt letter. And I can, mm. it seems like that there always comes that point in relationships. I guess I would say to focus on the love rather than passion. This is a person who has so much love in her life. It, that was, was so striking to me. Passion comes and goes, but love is permanent and eternal and is, is the thing that so many of us are, are striving for. Not the love that we get from others, but the love that we feel. What do you think? Well, I always think that when people are bored, it might be something to do with their relationship with their self as much as their relationship with their mm. partner. Mm. And when people talk about chemistry, what we're saying is we want there's a sort of natural spark between, let's say, you and I, and that naturally that will move us out of the everyday world of bringing up kids and cleaning the pots and pans into the sensual world. And that's asking an awful lot, because I think the spark comes ultimately from within rather than from without. We have to really know ourselves, understand what turns ourselves on. And I think she could just as much be bored with herself as with her partner. Mm. I mean, I think that she is beginning to start asking those questions, like, for example, what kinks am I interested in? And I think that that is a really good question. In fact, I'm in the process of arranging a program on kink, because I think if quitting has, has a bad press, kink has an even bigger <laughs> bad. And it's actually about creativity. It's about fun. It's about joy and play. And those are all great things to bring into your love life. I think that another problem we have with the word kink is we immediately go straight to dungeons and full leather and whips and things <laughs> like that. Whereas I actually was having a conversation with a, a friend and I was saying, you know, 
do you have kinks? And this might be the equivalent question to asking people if they've ever quit. They'll all say no, and then they stop and think about it. And this person said, yes, tight running shorts. <laughs> and in fact, it is what had what made him actually take up running. So it was a really positive kind of thing. So it can be some really small things, but they really do it for us. And I think if you can actually see kink as a dial rather than an on-off switch, so it's either we're in the dungeon with the whips and the chains, or we're in pristine bed, you know, thinking of England, so to speak. Right, right, right. Conventional and boring. And, but, you know, your notion of it being more about when you feel yourself being bored or more about you than these outward circumstances in which you find yourself. There was a wonderful line, and I don't know if you know Sarah Winman, the wonderful British novelist. In one of her novels, she has a character thinking he had a relationship with a woman that doesn't work out. And he thinks to himself, it was the feeling I was running toward and the feeling was all mine, meaning it had nothing to do with her. So often that happens when things aren't working out romantically or personally. It's more about, just as you say, it's more about you rather than the other person, what they are or aren't to you. And that notion of being bored with oneself rather than the relationship just strikes me as very, very, if not specifically apropos, if someone listening says, oh, that's not me, but at least to consider the possibility. And even within that consideration, to me, there's room for such wide growth in a way of completely reframing and reconfiguring what an issue might be. It just opens up vast new vistas. And I think what we're talking about here is quitting the status quo, which is I'm going to push this mm. down. I'm going to, I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to live a bit of a lie because that is the very worst thing you can do. Because what happens is your unconscious still has all of these desires. You can't get rid of them altogether. And what's going to happen is you're going to suddenly find yourself with chemistry with somebody else. And that is the worst time to go to your partner and say, you know, I'm thinking our relationship isn't working. The first question is going to be, is there somebody else? And if you say, well, there is, but we haven't done anything, but I've just been aware, right, right. we're already in a crisis. But if there is nobody else, there is nothing else on the horizon. You're just saying, actually, I would like us to do different things in our sex life. You know, think back, what was it that we did in the past that really worked? It's really good, this sort of positive creativity. Because if you say, what's wrong with our relationship, the other person immediately gets defensive. Of course. If you go back and you say, when we first got together, our sex life was incredible. Why did it work so well then? And it won't just be novelty. It will be things like we set aside enough time to do it. We didn't have children. All these things, you know, you can set aside enough time. You can arrange times when the children are doing other things. And instead of actually catching up on the washing up or whatever it else it is, or going to the movies, that you're going to do something that is sexual. You know, here we are in a clean slate. You know, what would we like to explore? And if you start with things very much low down on the, the scale, like, you know, putting a blindfold on each other and just so that you can really get into the senses as opposed to just looking at the sight, it's amazing what you can discover. 
And you'll find there are games that you can play with your partner where they have boxes and, you know, you have to answer questions of, I mean, I don't know exactly what's in them because I've never actually got them, but I've had clients that have got them and have had a, you know, a really good discussion. These are prompted discussions so that you're actually talking about all these things together. And, you know, if you're ultimately, if your partner isn't interested in doing all these things and is happy as he is, then you can have a discussion about what you're going to, you can still have the discussion about what you're going to do about it. Whereas if you wait until there is a crisis and possibly you're either attracted to somebody else or you've had an affair with somebody else, the conversation becomes really quite dark at that point. At this point, it is light and open. I think you might need to speak to somebody first, somebody to explore all of this with, you know, discover how much of it is just about sex. It could be a whole range of other things. And this is not going to go down very well. Perhaps you're spending too much time focusing on the children and your life has become empty because you're doing everything for them. I can't tell you how many parents take their children to lots of interesting things and then just sit outside in the car waiting for them to finish. They don't actually do those things themselves. They take them to learn windsurfing and then they sit on a car on the beach and wait until they're ready, talking to other bored parents. They don't actually do it themselves. And we put all this energy into developing our children and not enough into developing ourselves. Do you want to add anything to that? No, that just sounds that sounds incredibly wise. And I think it all comes back to this idea of the relationship with oneself, hence the, you know, quitting being an act of love. It turns on what we're quitting, not just the relationship, but quitting a way of looking at that particular relationship. So it does all come back to the decisions we make day by day. You know, I think toward the end of my book in particular, I talk about the courageousness of looking at life and some of the ways that you've been talking about too. These are not easy things. There's not things that just come naturally that we we have to challenge ourselves to look at our lives as these finite things that they are and think what where do we want to be at the end of this strange journey as we approach what Robert Louis Stevenson called our common destiny? Because it is true. That's where we're all going to end up. So I think your answer is really quite profound. So what can't you quit? I'm at the moment giving up various things because I'm going on a retreat and I have a, a whole list of instructions. So today's the first day that I can't have any anything sugary or salty or uh, yeah. spicy. What can't you quit? On a day-to-day level, and I know this is not good for me, I, this will sound a bit silly, but truly coffee is like one of the ruling passions of my life. And if somebody said to me, you can never have it again, it isn't, it's the whole ritual. It isn't, I would argue that it isn't only the the, the caffeine part of it, the chemical component. It's just the whole ritual of the, the, the darkness and the rich flavor and the, it's stop part it. of the morning. Stop it. Oh, stop <laughs> it. I can't have coffee either. Oh, you, oh, you haven't. No, no, no. You can't let, you can't let go of coffee. I'll give up anything but that. I could give up sweets before coffee. And that is saying something because I do love my sweets as well. But on a more profound level, I alluded a little bit to it earlier when I said, there is a kind of a darkness and a pessimism that is, is it's sort of like bunting that is that is draped around. If you looked upon your your life and your background and your family as a room, if you can imagine it kind of swaddled in this in this dark bunting, that is the hardest thing. I've not gotten there yet, but I try every day. It isn't. It sounds silly to say becoming more optimistic. That somehow makes it sound kind of infantile, but I mean it in a much more profound way than that. 
to not look upon life as something that invariably is going to end in, you know, darkness and disappointment and despondency and death and all the other Ds, but that something that is filled with light and joy where the possibilities are endless and why even just being here should be a cause for, for great celebration. So thank you very much for being my guest today on The Meaningful Life. I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? That is such a difficult question, even though I, I had a sense that you might ask me that. I suppose it is the, the, the possibility of change in all of our lives. But I do. I mean, be it from, from habits we want to let go of to looking at life in a different way that I mentioned earlier, that possibility of change, the infinite possibility of change is what makes my life meaningful. So this is where the conversation has to end unless you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life because the conversation continues. I'm going to be talking to Julia about how to ask good questions because one thing a journalist is very good at is asking questions. And questions are the key to good communication, understanding your partner, your work colleagues. But it's a life skill we're not taught. If you'd like a masterclass on how to ask good questions and hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material this way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.